This week on Best in Show, we're combing through the Oscar shortlist, previewing the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, talking to the GOAT of cinematography himself, Roger Deakins, and revisiting the 2001 Best Picture nominees. Hi, and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Vicino, the West Coast editor at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about awards season. Throughout the series, we're discussing the noms and gongs, the snubs and surprises in cinema history, and we're letting the Letterboxd data tell us why the voters were right or misguided. We also meet contenders from this year's movies and interrogate insiders about the film ecosystem. Mostly, we'll do what we always do here at Letterboxd, celebrate cinema. And here again to celebrate cinema with me are my best-in-show besties, Hollywood veteran and our editorial producer, Brian Formo. Hey. (laughs) And our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracewood. I can never sound as ASMR as Brian. Hello. (laughs) Also on our team, outside in the broadcast van with their Takis and their peach snapples, are our resident fact finder, Jax Fax, and the man with the tape deck himself, our editor, Slim. Thank you, silent gents. First, let's check in on all the awards news. So just before Christmas, the Academy dropped the Oscars shortlists in a variety of categories. And I did some quick math because, as you all know, I am famous for my mathematician skills. (laughs) So uh, there are around 9,500 voting members of the Academy and almost a thousand new feature films were released in 2022. So the movies that are Oscar eligible have to have had a qualifying U.S. theatrical release in more than one city. So that narrows the field, but that is still hundreds of movies. So, Brian, I'm guessing the Oscar shortlist are an attempt to make voting easier for Academy members? Yeah, by the end of this series, you're going to be a regular Goodwill hunting, Mia. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Uh, Most Academy members are not as good as Kirsten Dunst, my beloved Kirsten Dunst, and who watched all the nominated films the first year that she was finally nominated. Essentially, the shortlist is where various boards of the Academy get together to condense certain category eligibilities. For categories like hair and makeup and sound, they have a committee reduce the pool of eligible films to a manageable size for the larger voting body. You said eventually this gets to 9,500 people. It starts much, much smaller than that. For categories like song, there's a threshold of time that the song must be played, as well as further research into whether the song was written specifically for a film and not a recording prior that existed prior and was just licensed for it. It has to be original for the film. Mia, because I know you love math, <laughs> original score uh, is my is my favorite part of the shortlist because there actually is math involved. And I've been duped in the past uh, by this as well, because... Okay, so to be eligible for original score, 60% of the music that is heard in the film has to be original to the film. And so like a recent a recent example of something that got disqualified by this is Arrival, which like moved me to tears uh, at, at, during certain musical moments, especially when uh, Amy Adams is discovering the chronology of her life uh, toward the end of the film. But that was all done by Max Richter, and it was from a previous album of his. And so even though Johan Johansson's score itself is very, very, very good, this math exists because voters might not be able to discern and they won't research to see, like, what is original score and what isn't. And so it just got outright disqualified. They used a pretty rough term in that one. They said that it was diluted by old music, but I would say that it was enhanced by old music. But that's why something like Arrival was... Uh, remove from eligibility. I feel like I'm Russell Crowe right now in A Beautiful Mind standing staring at those screens with all the numbers on them trying to kind of pull out single numbers to work out what percentage of a film has original music in it. I mean what happens in a movie like Tar where it's about Mala, right? Tar? You took the words right out of my mouth Gemma. I was just gonna bring up Tar. Okay, so that explains why Tar did not make the Oscars shortlist because so much of it, so much of the music is Mahler. Um, And there is, there is a partial original score uh, by Hildur Gunadatter. She wrote this, but, you know, we don't really get to hear a ton of it because it's the piece that Tar is like, you know, working on throughout the film. 
Um, but Hilder did get a traditional mention for women talking. So, so we're good. Okay. I mean, we will survive. We, we will. Us Tar Heels will survive. I mean, I was very confused about that. And because the other thing about Tar, right, is that all of the music we hear is in the rehearsal or composition stage. So it's sort of in another category all of its own. But I, yeah, I was just thinking I get really confused about score and, but particularly about best original song. There are songs that win for being in the film and advancing the story. And um, uh, the Muppets are my cast and danced. I'm going to try and mention them every single episode of Best in Show. Uh, so Brett McKenzie's Man or Muppet is just like the perfect example of an Oscar winning song that is in the film and advances the plot. But then there are the big credits bangers, you know, the Lady Gaga, the Billie Eilish moments. I guess we'll come back to this in a future episode because, frankly, I need answers. But for now, Brian, how does international feature work when non-American countries have already narrowed down their nation's best films to one submission? And not every country in the world makes a feature film every every year of our lives. So this year, there were 92 international features submitted. Why can't the Academy just get their act together and watch a world of 92 perfect films. It's the dream. I bet Kirsten watches them all. <laughs> I think we need uh, Kirsten Dunst to be in the next Muppets movies and like you and I uh, go to that. <laughs> and the movie. Oh, and, and, and Parker the, Posey. And we'll wait, all go. Yeah, and we will yes. all go. No, Kirsten yes. Dunst is a mathematician in the next Muppet movie. <gasps> <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Greenlit. I'm there. Greenlit. We've got all of our interests covered. All four quadrants. Yeah. <laughs> to answer the question at hand, instead of fan casting, um, Academy members, like, actually, we're always busy fan casting, but a lot of Academy members are busy working on things that, what? like, creating things instead of just, like, <laughs> bullshitting on a podcast, let's what? be honest. They do stuff <laughs> so, other than watching movies and voting, huh? Yeah, so the way the international feature works is there's a committee that narrows it down from 92 to 15 in this shortlist process. There are members who have met a minimum viewing requirement, so Kirsten and people like her. <laughs> and then there's, uh, later, there's an international feature film nominating committee. So we got 15, but then there's a different committee that goes from 15 to 5, and then eventually it goes to 9,500 people. But even when it gets to 9,500 people, you actually have to watch all of the five nominees. But that's the math to get there. I feel like if I won an Academy Award, if I won an Academy Award, when, sorry, when I won an Academy Award, I will retire and just become a voter. I would just spend my years watching all the movies and voting. I will be a committee of one. In fact, why don't we be a committee of three? Let's have our own committee meeting. What, what are we excited that made it through to the shortlist so far? What, what are you sad about missing out on? Brian? Um, as far as what I'm excited about, uh, all the beauty and the bloodshed made it through, which might sound not that <laughs> exciting because it has won numerous prizes and it is a documentary front runner. But the documentary branch has been kind of bizarre for a very long time. And a lot of things that win numerous awards leading up just like don't register there, including Goodnight Oppie, which swept the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. And it did not make the shortlist. It won every single award at the Critics' Choice and didn't make it to this shortlist. So the documentary branch can be finicky. So getting to this stage is an achievement. And I'm, I'm glad that my one of my favorite movies of the year, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, has made it to this small list, therefore more likely to get the nomination, if not the win, later. Before getting into snubs, uh, <laughs> Mia, what excited you? From what made it? I have a I have a creepy little answer. David Cronenberg's <laughs> Crimes of the Future squirmed its way in there for hair and makeup. That is very exciting to me. We don't often <laughs> we don't often see old crony rewarded. So not that he's rewarded, not that he's going to fully make it, but it's just nice to see him recognized. Um, him and his crew. That's about prosthetics, right? Because you, you've got something like Blonde in there, which is so clearly all about Marilyn's wig. But Crimes is about Ears on backs. Ears, surgery, scars, all that yucky stuff. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm stoked to see the yucky stuff being, being recognized. Brian, I know you are also happy about Crimes of the Future wiggling its way in. 
Yeah, but I would have liked to have seen Howard Shore get in for a score there as well, because it is one of his his best scores ever. But I'm glad we're talking about hairstyle makeup uh, because they've always done their own thing. And I love them for that. Film quality be damned. They know that Norbit and Suicide Squad do their craft proud. And that's what the category should be. This is always the space where you can kind of find a little bit of the the weirder and the goopier and the the the, the uglier and maybe just the downright bad. But Crimes of the Future, not bad. Crimes of the Future, very good. Uh, Gemma, what are you sad about? What am I sad about? I'm. I, I, it's quite tricky. But since we're talking about uh, makeup and prosthetics, I... I'm unhappy to see so many fat suits rewarded with shortlist placings. I, I see Elvis, I see the whale, and I see the Batman, aka the penguin, in that category, in that shortlist. And it just makes me a little, a lot grumpy. Um, I am... <laughs> Rightfully so. Yeah, I just feel like, oh, can we move past... Uh, maybe the nom is for Elvis's hair as well it should be, but, you know, it's, yeah... Enough said. Um, moving on. I'm sad that everything, everywhere, all at once didn't show up in the nominations for hair and makeup or for visual effects. Those were tiny teams working with a tiny budget, but they achieved so much with them. I mean, Joe Butapaki's outfits, Joe Butapaki's hair and makeup are uh, off the chain. However, if we're talking about makeup, I am very, very happy to see my former hairdresser, Jamie Lee McIntosh, who has two films on the hair and makeup shortlist with Blonde and Babylon. And Mia, I believe that she will be on a future episode of Best in Show. I can I can confirm we did talk to the Jamie Lee Macintosh. Oh, exciting. Speaking of Jamie Lee, Brian, I know you're a blonde defender. Step on up. Tell me about it. I have been outed. I am a blonde <laughs> defender, which is controversial, but I actually think the easiest thing to defend about blonde is the craft, regardless of how you feel about the film overall or its intention or anything in that regard. The, the crafts, uh, the crafts people of that film did such exemplary work. And uh, while it's nice to see blonde there again with score, I think that. Um, that Nick Cave and Warren Ellis certainly deserve to be there as well. Nick Cave obviously is a, well, I mean, can we call him a pop star? He's a rock star. There we go. Those used to exist. <laughs> Mia, who stood out to you from the original song that you're excited is there? Well, okay. So first I want to talk about all the pop stars that are in this lineup because it is it is truly wild. So we have Rihanna. It's pronounced Rihanna, not Rihanna. I learned this recently. Rihanna, The Weeknd, Drake, Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga all have shortlisted songs. I feel like this is a ploy to get more younger people to tune in and hopefully it'll work. Um, <laughs> would love younger people to tune in. So great. Um, but what I'm super excited about is that we have alt rockers, Mitski, my <gasps> favorite musician ever. I, I love her so much. So we have Mitski, Son Lux and David Byrne. So they have a song for everything, everywhere, all at once called This Is A Life. That is shortlisted as well as LCD Sound System's original song for White Noise. It's it's such a wild lineup. The one uh, pop star or pop group I'm sad missed out is Four Town. I mean, where is Four Town this year? Turning Reads, Nobody Like You was, uh, I have to say, in my Spotify wrapped, the most listened to song of the year, thanks to my six-year-old. Big fan. Uh, and it's yeah, catchy. It's, it's genuinely it's, a great boy band song. Right. And it does and it does that thing that I believe original songs should do, which is that it exists inside the film, not just during the credits. Yes. And it is, you know, and it speaks to the central theme, which is there is nobody like you. Embrace who you are in all of its fullness, whether you are a, a, a panda or a member of the Dirty Three. I just wanted to bring up one thing. While you're saying, while you're talking about songs that actually push the narrative forward. So as I said, Mitski was shortlisted for Everything Everywhere, but I I really loved her original song for After Yang. She okay. she had multiple original songs and that song is actually very narratively important and I may actually prefer that one. Um, okay, thank you. I if only we that. were on the Voting Academy. Uh, there are a few other songs uh, narratively that are extremely important this year. Should we talk about them? I mean, Child Papa, from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Ah, oh, bellissimo. 
Italian representation. We love that. And what's what may be most thrilling is Natu Natu from RRR is shortlisted. Come on. Like that is one of the few nods not by pop stars or not in the English language. And it also features extremely heavily in the film. There's a whole dance number. Oh my God. It's so much fun. It was maybe my favorite scene of the film. Yeah. I'm thrilled to see it there. <laughs> Do you think we've talked enough about the Oscars shortlist? Well, we didn't keep it short. <laughs> That's <laughs> so for sure. I think, I think we have. Uh, we should talk about one of the groups uh, that has that have seen the light with regards to RRR. SS Rajamouli won Best Director from the New York Film Critics Circle, which are about to present Wait, their winners tomorrow Wait, hold on, Brian, Brian, night. Brian. Hold up, hold up. Yeah. How how does this work? So they're about to present the awards, but SS Rajamouli already knows he won. Yeah, the so the LA Film Critic Association does the same thing as well. Both of these major organizations, they uh, meet together on a weekend. They have a lunch. There's a, lot, a number of critics who have joined their ranks. They get together. They argue about movies. There's a Twitter feed that updates uh, a winner and a runner-up about every 20 minutes <laughs> once they've settled something. Uh, and so there, there are no nominees. Uh, there are only winners and runners-up, and so they are properly wined and dined once they have won in January. And how does that fit into the award season ecosystem? Well, there is mostly they operate on their 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 own, and they have kind of like their own sensibilities, and they they normally don't overlap because they like to show that they have their own type of personality. Uh, but we did talk with Jacqueline Coley from Rotten Tomatoes, and she gave a very good example from last year about how they loved both organizations love Drive My Car so much that they both gave that the top prize. And when they align like that, it does push a movie that might have been on the fringe or seemed to be too much of a long shot suddenly right into Best Picture Race. What I love about the choice of Isis Rajamouli I don't know why I would expect the New York film critics to go with someone like Todd Field, you know, a film like Tar, which is so very, very New York-y, or, or something more like After Yang that, that gives us an image of a, a utopian future we could, we could live in. But they've gone for a Telugu language blockbuster of just joyful proportions with absolutely over-the-top action and special effects. What does this say about this group? I think, I mean, a lot of the buzz uh, when it hit theaters in America came from New York film critics. And, and it was, I think, very like packed screenings in New York. You would see over and over, I never had so much fun in my life as I did at the RRR screening. And a lot of that was coming from New York. So I, I feel like it does make sense there. But Tar definitely did not lose out. It won their best film. Kate Blanchett won. Todd Field won in script as well. So it Tar ain't hurting. <laughs> we love to hear that. We do love to hear that. Oh, wow. That is exciting. So we are sending our very own social media manager, Flynn Slicker, to the carpet to try to snag some quips from Kate Blanchett, Colin Farrell, Kiki Palmer, Charlotte Wells, among many others. So as always, you can check our episode notes for a link to the list of winners. So you can add any you haven't yet seen to your watch list. Do either of you know who won Best Cinematography from the NYFCC this year? Here's a hint. Sky People. Uh, wait, Avatar wasn't out yet. Was that your guess, Gemma? They had seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Sky People. Was it the one about the guy and the birds? No, that's a documentary. Okay, okay, wait. No, it's... Again, if they gave Best Director to RRR, it's highly likely that they would have given something like cinematography to Top Gun Maverick, right? <gasps> Gemma, yeah. you so got it. Right. Yes. Yes. We were trying to stump you, but you're too smart. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. Claudio Miranda. Claudio Miranda. I mean, you know, it was an incredible feat of cinematography involving many, many, many cameras. I know that because we had have an interview on Journal with the Sky stuntman who talked a lot about the many months that they put into figuring out which cameras to use up in those The original airplanes. Sky person. Yeah, the original Sky person. <laughs> <laughs> why, why are we talking about cinematography? 
Well, because we're about to pull back the curtain on cinematography, Gemma. Right? Of course. We're going to hear from, (laughs) of course. (laughs) So we are going to hear from Roger Deakins, aka The Goat, about who inspired him when he felt like he'd made it in movies by looking away from the Academy and towards cinematographers themselves. It seems like he has a lot of fun with all these, uh, all these incredible filmmakers he works with. I mean, consider the fact that four of the films that Roger Deakins shot are in the all-time Letterboxd Top 250. Shawshank Redemption, No Country for Old Men, Prisoners, and Fargo. He didn't win an Oscar for any of those, but he was nominated for all four. He just doesn't stop being the goat. On that note, if you search Deacon's goat or Deacon's god on Letterboxd, you get the maximum amount of search results on Letterboxd. We can't even quantify the data. And I know that you love math, but this like breaks the math in Letterboxd, Mia. <laughs> We're into infinity. And and one of the other things is that many people on Letterboxd, uh, if they're reviewing a film that Roger Deakins has shot, it's just his name repeated over and over and over in all caps. There is an urge to caps lockify his name. I did check... <laughs> And I all capsed Roger Deakins in my Dinner with Friends review. Please check it out. (laughs) See? So I got to say, I think my most formative moment in cinema was when I was a teenager growing up in Torquay in the winter there was nothing to do so I joined joined this little film society that would put up a temporary projector with a a screen and a 16mm projector and they would show all kinds of movies and I remember seeing Alphaville last year in Marion Bad which I didn't understand at all but (laughs) I was absolutely intrigued by Uh, what was the other one 400 Blows or something I don't know there was all these movies and Peter Watkins War Game which was basically about what if a nuclear bomb went off in London. I don't know if you remember that film, but it was banned. It went round film societies this year, one year, and then it got banned by this BBC for 25 years. But it actually won, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Those films really kind of blew my mind, but it didn't, it didn't have any connection to me in terms of what I was going to do with my life, you know, because film was like, I might as well have got try, tried to go to Mars or something. You know, I would grew up, my, my dad was a builder and uh, that's what I was going to do with my life, you know. Speaking of Torquay, it's really interesting because much like Margate, where Empire of Light is filmed, you know, you, you grew up by the sea. What was, what was the best thing about growing up in a seaside town? I love fishing. I'd go fishing in the morning. I'd go to school. I'd go back fishing in the afternoon when I got home from school. Sometimes I would sleep out on the rocks all night fishing. Then I go to school. Has anyone made the definitive film about fishing yet? Old Man of the Sea, I suppose, was pretty good. Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Uh, you brought up that your dad was a was a builder um, into Empire of Light. Uh, my first job that I ever had was at a was at a movie theater. What what was your first job, and how did that inform your work? Uh, I used to work on the building sites. For my dad, um, that was, my, I guess, my first job. Um, I went to art college, and then um, I got a job very temporarily at an art center um, as a photographer, taking, um, trying to record uh, country life in North Devon. I did that for nine months or a year, and then I went to the National Film School. Um, and then I started shooting. When I left the National Film School, I... Started work as a cameraman. So I guess you could say my first job was a still photographer, but only briefly. I wasn't really a still photographer. Uh, so my first job, my first proper job was as a cameraman, you know. <laughs> and you're still a still photographer. You've got this beautiful book out that you've just come back from this, you know, this book tour of Byways. We have to mention Thanks, that Nick. because it is, you know, the season for gifting. Um, I mean, the, the stills that you took on location mostly early in your career, but offset. They're all over. Some, some are from that one year I spent, 1971-72, photographing rural Devon. And uh, some of them are just from a few years ago when I was wandering around 
a, a home, Torquay or Teamworth or somewhere down on the south coast. So, I mean, uh, there are photographs from everywhere, but I mean, uh, the, it was a sketchbook. It was just, you know, like I just had these photographs and I, I, I like books. I like something tangible. So James, my wife said, let's see if we can find somebody Publish this book, you know, a book of photographs. And, and uh, Italian publisher Damiani uh, were really enthusiastic. And, and uh, so, yeah. But I'm surprised at how, yeah, people, <laughs> how successful it's been. It really was just a sketchbook and maybe a bit of a vanity project, but I don't know, whatever. Well, something that really, uh, I, I've, I've, I have the book and I really love your introduction to it as well. And something, that I deeply felt that you wrote in it, you kind of alluded to, uh, is that when you were starting your studies, you did not know exactly what you wanted to do. You just knew what you did not want to do. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, what was the moment when you first felt cinematography was your thing? And was there a film or director you worked with that activated that for you? No, it was being on the set of 1984, which is probably my third, fourth film I shot, but it was being on the set. But on at lunchtime, we were sitting, we were down in Wiltshire somewhere, uh, sitting on a hillside, having lunch. And I was sitting there with Richard Burton and John Hurt, and they were just talking about movies. And I thought, my God, I really am a cinematographer. What a moment. And this was really... You know, I felt I really found my place in the world. <laughs> you know, I mean... You know, a kid from Torquay, how how lucky can you be sitting with... I, for me, Richard Burton was the greatest actor ever. I thought he was... I, I mean, The Spy Who Comes In From a Cold was like one of the great, great movies ever made. And uh, to work with a guy and John Hurt, I mean, it was like, wow. So it, was, it suddenly dawned on me that maybe that's what I am, a cinematographer. <laughs> Well, I mean, speaking of of being inspired by your elders, we asked a young cinematographer member of Letterboxd if he had a question for you, because Brian and I are not cinematographers. We're, you know, other parts of the film set, but we, we haven't had our eyes behind the lens. And so Corey Gegner, member of Letterboxd, asks, I always want to know if Roger can ever fully visualise a film mentally before he gets on set. And how much is just seeing it unfold and winging it? Uh, it's a bit of both. I mean, the thing is, you can visualize it, yes. I mean, on a case like 1917, we had to visualize it. I did I visualize it before we, before we started production because it's tricky. You can visualize it, but then you don't want to be trapped by that. You know, you want to be open to the day and the moment. And, and sometimes... Especially working like with Joel and Eve and Cohen, it's wonderful because they storyboard everything, and sometimes I'm involved in all that process of storyboarding. Sometimes not, um, and you get on the set, and sometimes it might be, oh well, why don't we just do this instead? You know, you got to be open to that chance, or you know, um, so it's it's both. But yes, I think it's important that you do have a visualization in your head somehow. But then I suppose in a way it's always disappointing when it when the end product is never as good as what you had in your head. <laughs> well, okay. So Olivia Coleman, who plays Hillary in Empire of Light, obviously she's one of the best we've we've got working today. Yeah. She was in an Empire of Light QA. She was asked what it was like working with you. She's she talked about how calm it is on a film set with you, Roger. And I wondered, I mean, do you ever lose your rag? You seem like the no, nicest, no. most most important person to have on a set for an actor. I, I sometimes my, lose my rag in a production office, but uh, no, not on a set, no. Not, not in front of actors. No, I mean, so much part of your job is to create that kind of safe, safe, quiet space, you know? Because if you don't have a performance, if you don't have the actor creating a character, then you've got a movie of you. You might have a lot of nice, pretty shots, but it doesn't mean anything unless you're creating a character. So I think whether it's Olivia or Richard Burton, whoever, you you want to create a space where they feel comfortable to do what they need to do. And and like I'm saying, you know, 
you might think these actors are like incredibly self-confident and all that, but a lot of them aren't, you know, and they really, they really need that sort of that space to work in, you know. Not to put it lightly, you've won two Academy Awards among many others and, you know, pulling, pulling back the curtain a little bit, this is, this is Best in Show, it's an awards season podcast, you know, we're, we're sort of in, in that milieu. Um, but I want to ask a really meaningful question about what it means to win those awards because essentially it's an award for leadership. It's not an award for you, Roger Deakins, cinematographer, and the work that you as an individual did each day, right? No, and you've no. been very clear about that in your acceptance speeches. You have named your crew. You name your focus puller. And I, I guess I wanted to ask, what is good leadership? How do you lead well in a creative environment with time and budgetary pressures? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I always am. I, 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 I don't. Yeah, it's hard, really. I mean, I've worked with some of the same people for 30 years. I've been a gaffer John Higgins on, on Empire, and I go back to even before 1984. But the 1984 was the first film, first big film that he was gaffer on, and, and certainly the, best, the biggest film I'd shot at that point. And so we, we had a lot of history. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I I think I can be difficult to work with or for sometimes, but um, I, I may be a bit over demanding. I, I maybe it's hard. You've got something in your head, and the the trick is to communicate that, and 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 also to to try and make every make everybody feel involved. As somebody said, in the end, it's your decision whether. You use one, that light or that light, or whether it's green or red or whatever, you know, where the camera is, what lens you're on. But you really want everybody's input and feel everybody is working to the same end. And that's the wonder of filmmaking, really, is that collaboration, you know. So you go back to the awards. Yeah, the award is for the film. It's for the crew. It's for everybody that helped create that image. But it's also, I think, awards are just celebration of movies. I don't, you know... Having said that, uh, were you aware of or touched by how adamant a lot of film fans were for you to get your first? And did you feel even the slightest bit different when you finally won your first Oscar? As my wife reminds me, it was the most terrifying moment when they called out my name. And when I walked up on stage, I, I didn't have a clue what I was going to say. I never make anything up or write anything down. And I was as nervous as hell. So I got up and turned around and then I saw that so many people in the audience that I'd worked with or I knew, you know, loosely, whatever. And, but they're all smiling and clapping and they all seemed really pleased. And now that really made me feel, you know, I was amongst friends really. You know, then you really feel you're part of a, um, a community of filmmakers, you know, uh, and that's what it's about. And, and that, that made me feel okay. Then I could talk, you know. Uh, it's funny, really. It's an odd business. But at those moments, you suddenly, you do realize there's, there's, there is a community and there are a lot of people that, like you, are passionate about what you do, are passionate about movies. And that's what gives you, oh, I'll go on now, but that's what gives you hope, really, you know, despite all the, the way people say movies are going. I mean, there's so many people that really care, you know. Speaking to the collaborative nature of, of filmmaking, uh, Chariots of Fire plays a pivotal moment of Empire of Light. And of course, that movie's score by Vangelis has added to its lasting power. I'm wondering if there's any film in your filmography that when you, when you finally saw the finished product, you were just absolutely floored or just taken by surprise by how music was matched to your visuals. I wasn't surprised, but I think, uh, I think there's, there's a combination of the music. Well, there's two films really, and they're very different. The mu the music and the visuals and the whole mood in the assassination of Jesse James, I think is quite, quite beautiful. And, and I think the music, the way, Jenny uses music and Sicario is quite beautiful, but in a very different way. It's a much harsher kind of 
result. I don't know that I can keep going on because the music in 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 uh, obviously in Kundun is kind of quite quite special, really, and so fitting for the for the movie and the mood of the movie. Best music in any movie, I would say, actually, is No Country for Old Men because there's no music in it at all. So I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, everything is. I'm being facetious, but you know, everything. It, it's just what fits the story. Sometimes, yeah, there's uh, that you 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 need the music because it's a certain sort of poem, like Assassination of Jesse James is like a visual poem, as is Kundun. But then, you know, No Country for Old Men is a bleak kind of brutal view of a real world, you know, of a future that we're trying to kind of keep at bay. I mean, it would have been, I, I think, the Coen Brothers' choice of no music was brilliant, you know. We'll, we'll treat this narratively, and this will be a this will be a bookend question to how we started. Uh, while searching for all these glowing Deacons reviews, we did discover something that neither Gemma or I knew before, which is uh, how you worked with Pixar and DreamWorks to impart your knowledge on their animations. We're wondering, while you were imparting your wisdom to them, what are some things maybe that you learned from that process to bring to the natural world? I I love that. Uh, I love doing those films. I mean, I worked on a number of animated films. I mean, starting with um, working on Wally for a while. Um, I just love the collaboration. Like I say, you know, I love the I love the collaborative nature of filmmaking, and so, you know not doing some live action and then being asked to do animation and and um, just the people I met and the kind of system of working and just swapping ideas. I'm talking with Dean Dublau, director of uh, the How to Train Your Dragon series, you know, just the experience of us just talking about, oh, no, what if, you know, what should this look like? What if we did this and then and then actually go, <laughs> going scouting one time to Norway and Svalbard with Dean. <laughs> Just to get a sense of, uh, of, of, of the reality, even though we're working on an animated movie. But it was just, I mean, it's great experiences, you know? So much, so much is about the people you meet and work with and, uh, and yeah, swapping ideas, you know? Uh, yeah, I bring what I had in live action, and especially... They are on, um, especially on Wally, um, Andrew was really trying to get a live action feel, feel to animation. So I had a, I had that side of it to offer them. But I mean, I got so much out of the way they were doing things and the techniques. And, uh, you know, I think it's so apparent now, especially with the, the, the CG world that those two, those two worlds are really coming together, aren't they? You know, you could say, where does an animated film end and a live action begin? Now, there's a certain big blockbuster coming out next week, I think it is. What is that? Is that animation or is it live action? Beats me. <laughs> Love it. All right, last question. And 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 it's on that, on that front of collaboration and discovering new things. I imagine when I think of cinematographers that there's some cinematographer's lounge that exists in the world where you all gather to talk about, you know, lenses and the last good meal you ate. Is that what cinematographers talk about? Or are you sitting there with your mates going, that jammy bastard, did you see what he did with that shot in that film? It's incredible how open other cinematographers are, how open they are about the way they do things and their work. I mean, because it's... There was a cinematographer who did some pickups on a film I'd shot, right? And I'd done this, this, all this lighting in a certain way. And in order to sort of match what I did, he was trying to use the same equipment I was using. And he said to me, like, he said, I tried to do it, but I couldn't do it the way you did it. So I did it the way I did it. I do it, you know, and it matched perfectly, but he was using a totally different technique, you know. And and so it doesn't matter, you you know, there are no secrets because the secret's meaningless if it's not the way you approach things, you know. It's you've got to find your own way of doing it. So yeah, I mean there's like 
the American Society of Cinematographers, it's a clubhouse that I used to go up to a lot. I haven't been there for a while, but um, I remember going up there uh, uh, years ago and meeting the greats like Gordon Willis, talk about The Godfather, Conrad Hall, Haskell Wexler, Vilma Sigmund, they were all there and they're all talking about, yeah, things they'd done and swapping ideas and but just actually reveling in their lives, you know. And and that that was really, really quite wonderful, you know. It's just the sort of the joy those people had for what they did, you know. But yeah, sure they'd bitch and moan about a producer or something like that, or or whatever in particular, <laughs> you know, situation. But it was all because they were so passionate about what they were doing you know who would you put in their in their standing now of new and upcoming cinematographers i was a different world then you know it was a different world i mean there's great cinematographers out there don't get me wrong i'm not saying there's not and i wouldn't mention one because if i did i wouldn't mention other ones i should mention the same breath but uh it was i think everybody would agree that it was a different kind of world then that the, the the Conrad Halls and the Gordon Willis's and the yeah Haskell Wexler, Bilba Sigmund. I mean, I should, you know Laszlo. I mean, there's so many many greats. Um, you know, but it was a different world. It was film, and it was a different way of working. You know, but on Letterboxd, it feels like there's really only one great, and it's <laughs> it's Roger Deakins, goat. <laughs> So, all award ceremonies have that moment after the final gong when you get to loosen your tie, unbutton your jacket, take that bra off, kick those heels under the table, and assess our life choices. And play a few party games. This is that moment for best in show. This is the after party. Uh-oh. Then oh, <laughs> this is Mia who won what 16 out of 22 at the Oscars predictions party last year. I don't want to play games with you. You're always going to win. <laughs> is it about winning and losing? It's about playing the game. Okay, good. Okay, That's good. Then I'm ready. As long as it's not about life choices, because I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hit us with the game. What Let's is it? What it. is it? Okay, what are we playing? it is. It is time to play the heart rate. Okay, so this is a little game invented by Best in Show's resident Jigsaw. That's me. So here's how it works. Every week, one of us selects a year category and awards show. We watch the nominees of the year. We rank the films by the ratio of watches to likes on Letterboxd. We find out what the Academy decided, and we announce who we would have given the trophy to. I'm very loose with my hearts. Right. I'm quite loose with my hearts as well because I'm not so loose with my ratings because I get really nervous about exactly rating things publicly. Uh, so this is for those of us who, yeah, who are pounding that heart button to go, I thought this about it. And, 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 I, and I, what, I summarize that in so many words or, or, or hearts. But I also liked it. Is this right? Yes. Oh, okay, good. Gemma, you are a star student. <laughs> Congrats. You got it. Oh, man. And to think that I failed uh, year one economics and uh, year six maths. I, yeah. We're all going to be Goodwill yeah. Huntings by the end of this. <laughs> this is the math that really matters. This is life-saving, life-changing math. So let's kick it off. I chose the 2001 Academy Award Best Picture nominees, which in order of letterboxed rating are oh. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. By the way, it's with 4.3 out of five stars. Very high. So Very high. Then we drop off a little bit. We go to A Beautiful Mind, In the Bedroom, Moulin Rouge, and Gosford Park. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. These are our nominees. Yes. Is this okay? So this is why you made us watch these last week. It was so weird. I'm like, where? Okay, it was weird that fun. I made you watch many, many, many hours of <laughs> film and take took you away from your families to do this. But um, it was worth it. So <laughs> when we rank these films by heart rate, which is the ratio of watches to hearts on Letterboxd, what do you think has? the healthiest heart rate. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd personally like to say that it's Moulin Rouge. That's the ideal world, huh? Only one of these is not only in the top two, 250 on Letterboxd, but even in the top 60 
Lord of the Rings, 55 out of 250. So that's got to be it. I mean, yeah, let's be honest. Only one of these films has the concept of second breakfast. And so <laughs> it has to be that one. So is it? Is it Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's a pretty obvious one. That one's not really a stumper. Um, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings easily had the highest heart rate, but our beloved Moulin Rouge is coming in second. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. So it comes in like fourth in the ratings, but it jumps like leapfrogs, like like um, uh, can-cans into second place, yeah, exa- if you will, yes, once we exactly. add up the hearts. Is that a healthy heart rate or a heart attack? I'm not sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is a big jump. <laughs> it is a big jump. Yeah, it looks like it leapfrogs over Beautiful Mind, over Todd Field's In the Bedroom. We haven't even mentioned that Todd Field directed In the Bedroom. Todd oh, yes. Field's car. We'll get roads, into that. Don't all worry. Roads lead, all roads lead to Lydia, <laughs> who is in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Oh, Lyd- Lydia Tarr is in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've heard it here first. Let's talk about what we think should have won this year, right? The, the so 2001 what, what Best is, Picture. Yes, the 2001 Best Picture, I mean. So what what is your winner? Well, it's your game, Mia. You go first. Okay, thank you. Gladly. Moulin Rouge. Uh, so this is why. <laughs> why did we even won. ask? Why did uh, we even ask? <laughs> so, I mean, just on the merit of Elephant Love Medley, Ewan McGregor's singing voice, Nicole Kidman's costumes, designed by Academy Award winner Catherine Martin, who we also have on the pod coming up <gasps> soon. Ooh. This film has it all. It has great performances, looks, sounds, music, colors, editing, camera work. I mean, these are all the things that make a movie. And look at that beautifully high heart rate. I mean, obviously it's not going to beat Lord of the Rings, but I am very proud that it's coming in at a close second. The people love her. Gemma, please back me up here. I'm backing you up all the way. I can't believe that. Um, and you didn't mention Kylie Minogue as the absent <gasps> fairy. Speaking of all the pop stars we mentioned earlier, um, it's got tragic romance, but most of all, it's got the thing I love so much in movies. I love films about theatre and musicals. Topsy Turvy, Amadeus, Moulin Rouge fits right in there. I'm a huge fan. I can return to this film again and again and again, although I must say that my favourite of the Red Curtain trilogies from Baz Luhrmann and Friends is Strictly Ballroom because there is nothing like the Bago Pago. <laughs> Brian, I'm interested. Are you going to join the Dirty Two over here in our love for Moulin Rouge? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a drifter <laughs> out on my own. Actually, I'm not on my own because I am actually doing a very basic pick. Uh, I'm going with Lord of the Rings here. Um, I just, I, it's my favorite film of the, the, that trilogy. I think it's the most complete film from beginning to end. It's also the introduction. I think that the Academy was trying a wait and see approach to see if he could, if Peter Jackson and everyone involved could stick the landing before they, before giving it, because they shot them all back to back all at the same time. Um, it was not like made one and then there was a sequel. So I think that uh-huh. the industry was waiting to see, which is kind of why this year is interesting. But I do want to bring up my the largest memory that I have from watching this ceremony was just the sheer number of times that they replayed the sissy Spacek breaking a plate, screaming everything. That I was too lenient, <laughs> but I let him get away with everything. Yes, yes, and why? Uh, you can include my terrible SpaceX impersonation as well. But it's like the only like it's the this that's from in the bedroom. It's like the only like really loud scene in the whole movie because it's about waspy people who like don't ever like so terrible things have happened in their life and they don't ever like crack. But there's one scene where she does and they played it over. And over and over <laughs> to represent that film, and that is what I think of that 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 the, the amount of times they played that was basically the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, though, I mean, you are right. It was it, the Fellowship of the Ring is the best of the trilogy. Uh, you know, it's it's a perfect film, and it's so it's sort of so telling of the way that awards work that they were like, no, we're just not going to give it to you just yet. We're just going to wait to see if you can complete it. And I, yeah, but as you say, it was all shot at the same time. And here's a a fun fact for listeners. I was living in Wellington with a lot of friends working on those films at that time. 
you couldn't walk down the street without bumping into a hobbit. It was um, it was a pretty thrilling time to live in a sleepy little city uh, at the at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. There was one great night where I was sitting in a bar and I felt my knee rubbing against someone else's knee because it was a tiny bar that only had enough seats for about like thirty people. And um, and I looked over and it was Sir Ian McCallum's knee against mine, <gasps> and I was like, oh, that's right, not your type. Never mind, it's all good, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Enough about Lord of the Rings. What, Brian, our Hollywood insider, it's time. Of the 2001 Best Picture nominees, which one actually won? For those who haven't already Googled or committed the Oscar wins to their memory. Well, you don't have to be a Hollywood insider to know that A Beautiful Mind won. But why? Yeah, why? Do you guys think, why? <laughs> why do you think, Gemma? Well, okay, so it's a Ron Howard movie, right? Um, but I think it's because everyone loves a film about integers and dominance theory and solving the Riemannian. I mean, don't we? Yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> subgenre. <laughs> Integer, the integer subgenre. <laughs> no, I think it's because it's the kind of history-bending, big biopic, you know, big in, in quote marks, big biopic that Hollywood loves. It's the story of Nobel Prize winner John Nash, whose contributions to game theory changed economics. And it also uh, gives Ed Harris a fun role. I don't know. And Deacons, our good friend Roger Deacons filmed A Beautiful Mind. It has several goat-worthy camera moves, but mostly close-ups where no matter what's going on, he captures the sparkle in Russell Crowe's eyes and gives us plenty of time to look at Jennifer Connelly's face. And I go, I don't know, the VFX of the code-breaking bits was quite cool, I guess. What do you think, Brian? I think that largely what was playing at play here, I already kind of mentioned a little bit that I think that the industry wanted to wait and see how Lord of the Rings played out before they gave it really big awards out of out of the gate. And so you have this lineup, uh, Baz Luhrmann, he, he's great. He hasn't been like really in the Hollywood community for very long. Uh, he made two films, Romeo Plus Juliet and Moulin Rouge, uh, within that ecosystem. But you want to know who made a ton of movies within this ecosystem? It's Rod Howard and his producing partner, Brian Grazer. It's not just Ron Howard, the director, but Imagine Entertainment has produced so many, so many films, jumpstarted so many careers. And I think that like this, while the industry is waiting to see how Lord of the Rings plays out, they had an opportunity with one of the more serious films that Ron Howard has made to reward someone who they've worked alongside, who has like championed their work. And I think while we consume art at home, Hollywood makes it, and this is a community. And I think that they, this was a time to give him and Brian an award <laughs> for a movie that they liked. And it is a, as you, as you heard from Roger Deakins, when, ultimately when you win, you look out, it's people you work with that are looking back at you and smiling at you. And this was very much like a smiling back at Ron Howard and Brian Grazer year, I think. Brian, that was such a beautiful explanation that I'm going to give you the honor of picking our next heart rate assignment. Well, I am a, I am a director boy. I still, I know Auteur Theory is on the outs, but like it's Ooh. still, it's still, it's still in me, I guess. I can't shake it. I can't quit it just like Oscar season. So I'm sticking with directors, but I'm choosing the best director Oscar lineup of 1976, Ooh. which is, are you ready? Yeah. Yes. Uh, in alphabetical order, not showing favorites. John G. Avildsen for Rocky, Ingmar Bergman for Face to Face. Sidney Lumet for Network, Alan J. Pakula for All the President's Men, and the first woman to be nominated for Best Director, Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties. So of these, the only film that I haven't seen is Face to Face, so I'll be watching that. I, which homework are you giving yourself? Well, I'm going to have to give myself the homework of All the President's Men because I have a degree in journalism. I have a degree in cinema studies. Somehow, I've never seen this movie. What? Yeah, wow. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. No explanation for that one. You've, you've seen so, Spotlight, right? You've seen Spotlight? Of course, yes. But yes. you haven't Best seen All the President's winner. Men. Okay, I'm so glad. It's sick, isn't it? It's sick. I'm in love with the heart rate TM, the game. 
for bringing all the president's men to your table. Long overdue. Gemma, what are you going to pick? Bearing in mind that the Golden Globes are lacking a woman director nomination, I'm going to have to go with Lena and Seven Beauties, even though I'm a little bit scared of uh, the letterboxed reviews of this satire of uh, fascist World War II times. I'm going to do it. I'm going to dive in. It's what Lena deserves. You're very brave. And we all salute you. (laughs) Speaking of the Golden Globes, this actually ties in with Player of the Season. I'm (sighs) realizing we never explained Player of the Season. (laughs) This is where we get to be in the audience and smile at someone on stage who's doing good. Ah, okay. Explain it for us. This is your game, yeah, actually. It is. It is. Okay. So player of the season is really simply that this is a wild and crazy industry with that. It's done a lot of good and it's also uh, done a lot of bad. Uh, and we, in the spirit of um, this being the year that she said came out, we want to keep highlighting the people in the Hollywood and, you know, and wider film ecosystem who are just moving things forward a bit, who are, who are making a stand, who are, um, it's not just about what they're wearing on the red carpet. It's not even just about what they're saying. It's about what they're doing. Gemma, this is such a nice game. You're such a kind-hearted <laughs> jigsaw. <laughs> wow. That's all I've ever wanted to be called. <laughs> so in the spirit of player of the season, can you think of anyone who's done something in the last sort of week or so who might fit the bill? Well, we were just talking about the Golden Globes, um, and I would love to nominate Brendan Fraser for Player of the Season for Aww. saying that he will not attend despite being nominated for Best Actor for The Whale because, quote, my mother didn't raise a hypocrite. We love you, Brendan. Oh, oh, Brendan Fraser. We love you, Brendan. For anyone not following along, Brendan Fraser was molested by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's former president. That is a sentence. Nobody should have to say out loud. The HFPA, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, runs the Golden Globes. There was a sort of apology and a kind of investigation and a little bit of an outcome, but far too late in the piece, the damage to Fraser's ability to have a happy career without trauma was already done. And that underpins a lot of the comeback story this year. And by the way, okay, just to add to the crazy, that president, that molesterering president was only expelled from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association a year ago after outing himself as a racist on top of being an abuser. Ew, boo, let's get that trash out of here. That's the anti-player of the season, is that guy. So we've got an incredibly high-profile actor in a high-profile movie this season that's on like about a billion uh, letterbox watch lists. I'm no good at math. I, I'm calling it a billion. He's nominated for best actor and he's not going to the ceremony. That is player of the season material right there. Absolutely. Especially if Brendan Fraser does win and the person presenting has to say, or can say, because obviously this wouldn't be scripted for them, but they could say that Brendan Fraser could not be here tonight because... Years ago, he was molested by the president of the HFPA, which runs the Golden Globes. Now, that would be a television moment. Um, if you're, if you are, if this is a new story for you, I highly, highly recommend that you look up a 2017 interview in GQ that Zach Barron did with Brendan Fraser, which is actually he he was being interviewed because he was on uh, the affair and he hadn't been seen for a long time, and Zach Barron just. Uh, wanted to interview him about that. But Brendan called him later and gave a different interview saying like, I feel like I didn't answer your questions because I haven't like said this publicly and I feel like I should. I think it would help me out a lot. I interviewed Brendan and it was only like, they shove you in these rooms, you got a couple minutes. But at the very end, I wanted to tell him that that was a very important interview uh, for for me to read. And I think any young boy growing up or any person who was assaulted to read and kind of hear his perspective on that. It actually, uh, I don't, I don't love this movie, but I love that he is having a comeback, uh, after he gave such a soul bearing interview about basically feeling gaslit by the entire industry at, at really a high point 
in his career. This is right after the Mummy films. So like this isn't like, mm-hmm. you know, 2010 or anything like that. And and then here in that interview, I also talked to Hong Chao and Sadie Sink. And they mentioned that you want to hug Brendan within five seconds of meeting him. And that is so true. Thank you so much, Brian. What a beautiful note to end on. Coming up in the next episode, year in review, our own Letterboxd Awards. And if you rate movies on Letterboxd, then congratulations, you participated in the vote. much for listening to Best in Show, a limited award season series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it gives us dopamine hits, but more importantly, it spreads the word. You can follow all of us and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Jack for the facts, Slim for making us sound amazing, Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, and Letterboxd member Trent Walton for the music and to you for listening. Best in Show is a tape deck production. I'm going to end with Ron Howard here. I'm going to give a little Ron Howard quote when he accepted Best Director. And it sums up what we're all doing here as well. So it's pretty simple, really. I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for this. I'm grateful for an entire lifetime spent involved in this creative process that we do. The nice one. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Oh.